what is the difference between dependence and desperation? I've titled the sermon today, The Beauty of Dependence. And we're continuing our series, Counterculture, through the book of 1 Corinthians. We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13 today. And we're going to explore the difference between dependence and desperation. Now, what Paul has been doing in 1 Corinthians is he's just addressing one issue after another within the Corinthian church. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he addressed an issue regarding what they were eating, that there were uh, foods that had been sacrificed to idols, and there were people in the church at Corinth that had come out of this background of idol worship, and so their consciences were um, struggling, and they were wrestling with, well, do we eat this meat? Do we not eat this meat? Well, it doesn't bother me, but it bothers my brother, and so how does all of that relate within the context of the church? And Paul was encouraging them and admonishing them uh, to uh, stand fast in their freedom, but also to not do things that would cause their brothers to stumble. And then he goes into chapter 9, talking about the priority of sharing the gospel, the priority of evangelism, and that in his life he did not want anything to hinder what to him was the utmost priority, and it is the mission that Christ has sent us on is to make him known, to proclaim the gospel. And Paul said, look, I'm buffeting my body, and even physically, in my physical disciplines, I'm doing things uh, to keep myself spiritually and physically fit, emotionally fit, to stay healthy, lest I be disqualified from this preaching of the gospel. In in other words, I want to stay on task, Paul is saying. I want to keep the main thing the main thing. And he goes right from that discussion into what is our chapter 10, verse 1, and he says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be aware and so what he's saying is he's, that more ever is pointing back to what he has been saying. So he's continuing his argument. More ever, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. Notice how many times he says all. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now let's pause there for just a minute. What is the context that Paul's talking about? He's talking about the priority of the gospel and making sure that we are competing in such a way that we will obtain the prize and not be disqualified. That's chapter 9. And he's pointing them back to their ancestors, to those who were in Egypt, the descendants of Abraham that had found themselves in slavery. Then God raised up Moses. God delivered them from slavery. And remember, remember what led them By the day and the night, it was God's presence, but God's presence was manifested in a visible cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And God's presence led them through the Red Sea. And what Paul is doing is he's pointing them back and saying, look, don't you remember your forefathers? They saw these amazing acts of God, these mighty works of God. They they saw God work really in a way that no other people had seen God work on their behalf at that point. They they saw God's presence, and they knew that God was leading them, and they saw God split the sea. And then look at verse 3. 
all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was who? Was Christ. Let's stop there again for a moment. What Paul is saying is not only did they have that visible presence of God leading them, not only did God split the waters for them, but God fed them. God gave them manna each morning. They each morning woke up to a visible expression of God's provision. You know, you want to know where God's provision is? Boom, it's right there. God has provided manna for us this morning. They also had water even from a rock. They were in a place of desperation, crying out. And what God was trying to teach them was dependence, daily dependence on him. And water came from the rock. And that was given for them at that time, but it also foreshadows and prefigures Jesus who gives us living water, right? And what Paul's doing even in this as he's reminding them of what took place in their ancestors' lives and how God worked on their behalf, he's even pointing to the deity of Christ that Jesus uh, did not just step on the scene some 2,000 years ago, but he is eternal, everlasting God. And Jesus is that God that was providing even for their forefathers as Jesus is the one who provides for us today. And then look at verse 5. Here's where it changes. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Man, what a sad thing. Let's stop and think about that for a minute. The, these people had been in slavery, awaiting God's deliverance. And God did what he promised he'd do. He, in fact, did it in the time he promised it would, he would do it. And then not only does he deliver them, because this passage isn't even mentioning all the signs and wonders they saw in Egypt, right? All of the plagues that God brought and what God did to see them delivered from Egypt. So you have that. Then you have the things this passage is talking about. They saw God split the waters. They saw a visible manifestation of God in a, a pillar of a cloud by day and fire by night. They, they saw manna. They saw living water. I mean, just take inventory of the things they saw that God miraculously did on their behalf, day in and day out. And then verse 5, it's so sad, it says, but with most of them, God was not well pleased. And it was that generation that went all the way to the edge of the promised land. And after they had seen God work on their behalf in all these ways, what was their response? Uh-uh, we can't do it. The people in that land are too big for us. They forgot all of the lessons God had taught them along the way. They forgot the mighty hand of God that quickly. They forgot what it meant to depend on God. And it was that same generation. Don't miss this point. It was that same generation that had seen all of these mighty acts of God. That when they came right up to the edge of the promised land, they were unbelieving, unfaithful. They doubted God. They lost their sense of dependence on God. And it was that same generation that God had wandered through the wilderness for 40 years while they died off and God raised up another generation that would believe him and would go take the promised land. Isn't that a sad thing? And what Paul is doing is he's admonishing us, and we'll see this as the chapter plays out, 
as these verses play out, he's in essence saying, don't be like them. They saw these mighty works of God, and yet when it came time to take the promised land, they doubted God. They didn't depend on God. They turned away from God. And it was with those same people that had seen all these mighty things that God was not well pleased with them. Brings us to our first point today from verses 1 through 5. I'm going to explain this more as we go. But number one, there is a difference between desperation and dependence. While God hears the cries of desperation, we are called to walk in dependence. Uh, I heard Charles Stanley speak on the difference between desperation and dependence uh, a while back, and it really stuck in my mind. It really made a difference in my own life, and I put some thought into that and really uh, appreciated the way he presented it. You see, God hears us when we're desperate. Yes, if you read through the book of Psalm, you'll see David in places of desperation crying out to God. But we're not really called to just live throwing up Hail Marys out of desperation. That's not where we're called to live. Will we be in times of desperation as life goes about? Yes. Does life happen to us all? Yes. But where we're called to walk is in a day-by-day, moment-by-moment relationship with a living God who loves us, who is calling us to live in dependence on Him, much like He did with the children of Israel, that we daily trust Him for our bread, that we daily trust Him for guidance, that we daily trust Him for provision. I believe if we are aware of how dependent upon God we are, and we maintain that attitude of dependence day by day, we will find ourselves in desperation less and less because we will find ourselves walking in step with the master to such a degree that even when the trials come, we're not near as shaken because we're walking in step with him. I remember when I first surrendered to ministry, I asked several people for advice, and one of those was, My grandfather had been in ministry for decades and then had to medically retire because he had had a a stroke. And really the way he's lived his life since he had a stroke had such an impact on so many uh, people even uh, beyond uh, his years of active uh, church service. And I I call him Pappy, and I said, Pappy, uh, what is the one word of advice? If there was only one thing, and, and, and I picked his brain about many other things, but I said, what's the most important thing? What's the one thing if you were going to give a word of advice to a young preacher boy starting out in ministry? What's the one word of advice you'd want me to know? And he had had a stroke years before, and kind of you could tell in the way that he talks, but his voice got absolutely clear. It actually kind of kind of spooked me. I was like, whoa, when I heard him talk, because I hadn't heard him talk with this clarity before, really, and ever since. And he he got very clear in his speech. Without hesitation, he said, that you would know complete dependence upon God. I remember thinking, wow, wow, without hesitation. And you know what? That word of advice has got me a lot further than all of the seminary classes put together. But that you would walk in complete dependence upon God. That's pretty counterculture, isn't it? The world doesn't teach us that. 
But what does that have to do with this text? Well, it has to do with this text because God was not well pleased with them because they lost their sense of dependence on him. You see, God did things for them in their place of desperation. And what God was trying to do is to show them, look, walk with me day by day. Be dependent on me. That's how I've designed you to live. But when things went well, then they just kind of went their own way and they gained self-sufficiency and they turned from him. They would not wait on God. They wanted to do things their own way in their own time on their own agenda. This is clearly illustrated with the golden calf incident. I mean, God had just done these mighty works in their midst. Now God's presence is shaking the mountain that his presence is resting on. They're out Mount Sinai. God calls Moses to go up on the mountain where what's happening on the mountain is God is meeting with Moses and making a covenant with Moses, saying, these people will be my people and I will be their God, and here's how they can walk with me but not be consumed by my holiness. And while that covenant is being made, and while the people see the very presence of God in their midst, they decide they don't want to wait any longer for Moses to come down. And they say, well, we don't know what's happened to Moses. It's been long enough. It's, our timetable is up. God has not acted when we think he should act. And, and so now, you know, we're going to strike out on our own. And they talked Aaron into making them a false idol ironically, with gold that they had plundered from the Egyptians that God had just given them. And they bow down and they worshiped this image of a golden calf saying, here is your God. We don't know what's happened to Moses. You see, they had lost their sense of dependence upon God and it led them right into sin. We were made, God made us to live dependently on him, moment by moment. Let's continue on, verse 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now these things became our examples. See, Paul's explaining it to us more. To the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So again, keep the overall argument that Paul's making in mind. He's saying, look, I've been preaching the gospel and I don't want anything to disqualify me from the ministry. And so I'm going to press on and I'm going to stay fit. And then he's saying, and look, we also better learn from the example of those that went before us. That even though they saw all this, they fell away. And so we better learn from it so that we what? So that we won't fall away. You see the bigger argument here that he's making? They say, these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as some of them as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now that is from Exodus 32.6. That is the golden calf incident. So Paul is commanding us, remember what happened to those before you. And you do not be tempted to idol worship as they were. And God's judgment came on them for it. Now, you're not going to be tempted to most likely worship a golden calf, but we are tempted to worship other things before God. Let me put it to you this way. Is there anything in your life that if it was taken away from you, it would affect your worship of God? Might even be your children. Now, I know that's a tense subject. But what if something in your life was taken from you right now? Anything. 
material or even relationships, and your response was to turn away from God, you've just identified the idols in your life. You see where I'm going with that? And you know what? I've been there. I had a grandfather that when he suddenly died, I became very angry at God over that. And he had been an idol in my life. I didn't even realize. But we're all tempted to some degree to idol worship. And if there's anything in your life that if it was taken from you, that it would keep you from worshiping God and keeping him first, odds are you've just identified the idols in your life. And Paul says we better not do that. We must be on guard. If they fell prey to it, so we can. We have the same nature as they do. And let us not do that. Let us learn from their example. And do not become, look at verse 8, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Now that goes back to Numbers 25 where God had again done this amazing work in Israel's life and and the men went and they were intermarrying with the women of Moab which intermarrying between races is not what God was disapproving of he was disapproving of them intermarrying with a people that worshiped idols because he knew that their hearts would be turned away and that's exactly what happened and their hearts were turned away by the women of Moab and they were committing harlotry and they were going to prostitutes and they're doing this stuff with the women of Moab and what God is is doing is he's saying look don't do that in his word remember what happened to them because to them a judgment broke out and 23,000 fell in one day you know what we live in a world right now that is just pervasively aggressively tempting you to sexual immorality I mean, it is everywhere that you turn right now. And so you know what that means? It means that you, if you really love God and you're seeking to follow Jesus, you cannot shift the battle into neutral. Because when you do, you have just taken your first step towards defeat. So understanding that this world is coming at you with all kinds of sexual immorality, what that means is that in the love of Christ and by the power of his spirit, that I become more proactive in fleeing it, in combating it. It means that I watch what I watch more. It means that I'm more accountable. It means that I have hard conversations. It means that I ask friends to be accountability partners. It means that I put internet filters on things at my house for especially my children. It means that instead of just hoping things don't go wrong, I proactively flee, resist, and make a stand. And what Paul is telling us is, look, learn from those that went before you. Don't go into sexual immorality because God's judgment is on sin. And yes, while our judgment as Christians, as believers, is taken in the cross, there are still consequences for our rebellion against God. And look at verse 9. Nor let us tempt, really that would be better translated as put to test, uh, Christ. Don't let us test Christ, as some of them also tested and were destroyed by the serpents. That goes back to Numbers 21. Again, God had done these amazing works in the life of Israel, and they begin to complain. In fact, I can't, I mean, it's in Numbers 21. You can go back and look at it. They say, 
we're tired of this bread. We detest it. They took God's provision manna, and they said, we want something else to eat. We're sick of this. Whoa! Whoa! God has just provided for you, and your response is, I don't want it. Give me something else. You got anything else? God, do something else for me. And God sent fiery serpents that were biting them and striking them dead because of their grumbling and their complaining. They were putting God to the test. But isn't it interesting? Who does it say they put to the test? Christ. He is the God who has always been, who is, and who always will be. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by the serpents. Look at verse 10. Nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. That's from number 16. Uh, What happened there was, again, the people were in the wilderness. They didn't like the circumstance they were in, so they complained. And specifically, they complained against Moses and Aaron, God's leaders, God's called leaders, And God literally opened up the ground and swallowed up the complainers. God said, we're not going to have that, and swallowed them up. But do you see what Paul's telling them to do? He's saying, look, learn from the examples of those that went before us that, man, when they committed sexual morality, God, God did not care for that. God judged them for that. When they were going after idols, God judged them for that. And so Paul's saying, look, let's not be disqualified. Let's not allow sin to come into our life and hinder us from what God's calling us to do. Let's be proactive about it. But he also talks about putting Christ to the test in complaining. Bam, don't we live in a world of complaining? But what we need to understand is that when we find ourselves complaining, man, I hope we get this. God's word is clear. When we complain, we are actually sinning against God. When you're about to complain, stop and ask yourself, Is Jesus still on the throne? Because if Jesus is still on the throne, then what I'm complaining about is actually something that Jesus has allowed in my life. And so I'm actually complaining against him. Just stop and think about that for a moment. Before we complain, is Jesus still on the throne? Okay, then before I speak, I better realize Jesus, who is on the throne, has allowed this in my life for a reason. So what's far better to do is to go, God then what are you teaching me through this thing I don't like, this thing that's making me uncomfortable right now? Where are you calling me to grow in grace? Where are you calling me to grow in love? Where are you calling me to consider the needs of others before myself? How am I to grow in greater Christ-likeness rather than to gripe and complain against your lordship in my life? The Bible is very clear that we're to do everything without grumbling and complaining, to in everything give thanks that this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And when we're found complaining, it is actually sin before God. And I realize that we have things in our life that happen that are difficult, and, and I'm not pointing, anytime you point a finger, you're pointing a whole bunch back at yourself. So I am in this boat. We are together in this boat. And I have had to, at times in my life, just say, God, forgive me for complaining about this. Yeah, maybe I don't like it, but I need to look at the situation I don't like in the light of your lordship and see what you're doing here. Y'all with me on that? 
nor let us tempt Christ as some of them tempted, verse 9, and were destroyed by the serpents. They were complaining in that passage. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Look at verse 11. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition. There's the point of it. Look, we're to learn from these things, and for wise we're to learn from it, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And when Christ came to this world and died on the cross and rose again and ascended to heaven, he brought in the end times because the next thing on God's calendar is the return of Jesus. And so Paul is actually saying, look, learn from their example, but also realize there is an urgency in this day that we are living in these last times. And we are to learn from the examples of those who went before so that we might not be disqualified now, so that the gospel might continue to go forth. That brings us to our second point today, which is this. When you lose a sense of dependence you will gain self-sufficiency and the sin that comes with it. When I lose that sense of dependence on God, if I'm honest with myself, what's happened is I'm feeling pretty good about where I'm at. Look at what I've achieved. I've got the right friends and the right bank account and the right health and things. Are just, I've got life I've got life whooped. Look at what I've done. Well, get ready. You're about to fall. You're about to fall. When we lose a sense of dependence on God, what you have gained is, in essence, the pride of life and all of the sins. And it's a buffet. And all of the sins that come with that self-sufficiency. Sadly, we see it, I mean, in leaders in the political world, leaders in the church world, leaders in all kinds of places where they obtain success that is greater than their character. And they begin to think, well, look at all the good I've done. I deserve to kind of fudge on this or do this, or I kind of deserve this here. What happens is they've lost their sense of dependence on God. They've gained self-sufficiency and then they fall. What's interesting about this too is as I was praying through this passage, Solomon's dedication of the temple came to my mind. Now we know that outside of Jesus Christ, Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. God gave him supernatural wisdom. And Solomon was David's son who built the temple that David wanted to build, but God said, no, it's not for you to build. You have too much blood on your hands, but your son will. And God made a covenant uh, with David that extended to Solomon. And Solomon built this temple, this amazing uh, temple that was for the glory of God and, and the worship of God. And as they dedicate the temple in 1 Kings 8, Solomon, again, the wisest man that's ever lived, it's interesting in his prayer of the dedication, <laughs> it's kind of odd. It'd be like one of those moments where uh, you kind of have somebody that's being a downer, kind of your eh, eh, person, and, and Solomon's praying this prayer, and then he starts talking about, and God, when your people turn from you, and you're like, wait, what? This is supposed to be a big celebratory moment. What are you talking about? And he says, God, when your people turn from you and they go after other gods and they commit sin against you and you judge them and then they hear your judgment, they receive what you're doing and they turn back to your temple and they worship you and they pray, then hear their prayer and heal them. 
What I think is so interesting is in this great high moment in the nation of Israel, I mean, you're talking about this huge celebratory moment. We're dedicating the temple. This is awesome. In the midst of that, Solomon says, well, you know, God, I know how your people are, and they're going to turn from you. And so when we turn from you, uh, please remember our prayer and the sacrifices we make at this temple and heal us. Is that something? I mean, that's a glimpse into human nature, that at such a celebratory, a huge event, Solomon, the wisest man who's ever lived, he knows human nature so well, he's going, yeah, everything's going well now, but, but I know what we're going to do. We're going to really mess this up in a few years, and, and God, when we do, please hear us. Please restore us. There's just something about human nature that we all share. It's the disease of me, myself, and I that is just constantly drawing us away from living in dependence on God. But let's conclude with verses 12 and 13. This makes it absolutely clear what we've been talking about, this dependence versus desperation. Verse 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands, that's self-dependence, take heed lest he what? Lest he fall. You see, when we move out of a moment-by-moment dependence on God, it's not like there's a vacuum there that stays void. Self runs to fill it. And let he who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You are headed to a place of desperation when you move away from moment-by-moment dependence on God. And then one of the most misunderstood verses in all of Scripture, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, 1 Corinthians 10.13 is one of the most misquoted, misapplied Scriptures of all. What people do is they take 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and what do you hear people say? Well, God won't give you more than you can bear. <laughs> Wrong. Terrible theology. Look at 2 Corinthians 1, 8. I don't have that on the screen. Just listen to this. This is Paul writing just not that long after 1 Corinthians For we did not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure above strength, so that we despaired even of life. That sounds like he's been given more than he can bear. He's despairing even of life. Right? Amen? Let me me just clarify. God will absolutely give you more than you can handle. And he does that so that you will learn to depend on his faithfulness. Let's look at this verse, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you. That is in the context of the 12 verses that preceded it where Paul is saying, don't be tempted and go after the, don't be going into the temptation to sin. He's saying, look, you're going to be tempted with sexual immorality. You're going to be tempted to idol worship. You're going to be tempted to complain. You're going to go into these temptations, but God's faithful. God won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you could bear. And because God's faithful, he will provide a way out of the temptation to sin. That's what he's talking about. 
He's not saying that God won't give you more than you can handle. He's saying God will not leave you in the temptation to sin. And God will not leave you because God is faithful. But what we do is we take a verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that's all about the faithfulness of God, and we make it all about us. And we say, God won't give you more than you can handle. You sure must be strong if God's given you all that. That is so man-centered. That is all about us. Look at how strong I am. God's allowing me to bear up all these trials. That is terrible theology. That verse is talking about the faithfulness of God to deliver you from the temptation to sin. That's what it's about. Paul says again in 2 Corinthians 1.8, man, we despaired even of our life. We were to the point of death. We were completely overwhelmed. We had more than we could handle. But you know what? God is what? He's faithful. And what's counterculture about that is we don't like admitting when we get overwhelmed because we think it's weakness. And so we don't even want to admit that it's possible that God would allow us to be overwhelmed because that's weak. But the Bible says that when I'm weak, he is what? Strong. And so Paul says instead of Shunning my weakness, I embrace weakness that I might know his strength. His grace is sufficient for me. So again, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is not about whether God's going to allow you to have more than you can handle or not. It is about the faithfulness of God to not leave you in temptation to sin. But through him, you can have victory over sin, and you don't have to be like the forefathers that tested God, that fell into sexual immorality, that fell into idol worship, that fell into complaining, and God judged them. We don't have to be like them. We can actually overcome temptation to sin and run the race that God has set before us and receive the crown that lies before us and we can be found faithful because what? Because he is faithful. Brings us to our third and final point. Sometimes God teaches us dependence out of an experience of desperation. Sometimes we get so full of ourselves, God allows us to crash and burn and get desperate so that we will come to our senses like the prodigal son and again learn the beauty of dependence. It's a beautiful thing to day by day depend on God. Day by day, God, start your day this way. God, thank you that today you are going to supply my every need according to your glorious riches in Christ Jesus. God, thank you that whatever you want me to have today, you're going to give it to me. God, thank you that the relationships you want in my life, you're going to give them. Thank you, God, that in the relationships that are strained right now, you're going to give me the grace to bear those. God, thank you that the provision you want me to have, you're going to give. God, thank you for the strength that I need today. Man, and, and I realize that many of us, man, there are some of you that are going through some difficulties. Your body's wearing out on you. You have chronic pain or you have diseases or you have family turmoil. Or there has been death and there is difficulty but listen, that's when you better be completely consumed with how faithful God is. Amen? To look at all the difficulty and to get praising Him for how He's going to be faithful to you in it.
That's where the power of the Christian life is found. It reminds me of the Apostle Peter, and about to close here. But Peter, he, he had foot and mouth disease run rampant, right? I mean, right all through the Gospels, he is just messing up over and over and over again. And then Jesus is talking about his crucifixion and how the disciples were forsaken. And he says, not me, not me. I'll even die for you. I'm not going to forsake you. And Jesus is just like, okay. In fact, you're going to deny me three times, Peter. Uh, that's what's going to happen. And so what happens is what Jesus said would happen and then Peter is downcast, and the Lord, the risen Lord, shows grace to him and restores him. Then in Acts, the Holy Spirit falls on Peter, and we see a changed man. Through the book of Acts, does he still mess up at times? Yes. In fact, he kind of bucks God when God says, go to Cornelius' house. He's like, oh, he's a Gentile. I can't do that. And then God has to take him to school again. But for the most part, what you see through the book of Acts is the apostle Peter who is so sold out to Jesus, so living in dependence upon Christ, that whether he is in jail or free or being threatened or being praised, it doesn't matter. He is about the mission that God has called him to. And that's what Paul's getting at, is are we about that mission? And are we basically fleeing sin and resisting sin and trusting in the faithfulness of God so that the mission does not become hindered. you got to take it in the bigger context of 1 Corinthians. And that's what the, the cross really is all about, is at the cross, God takes us from a place of desperation into a place of learning the beauty of day-to-day -day dependence. Because you see, in the cross... All of our sin is judged. And that is desperately what we needed. Because we stand before a holy God condemned. We stand before a holy God deserving of hell. We stand before a holy God deserving of His wrath. That's a desperate place. Amen? And yet what God has done on the cross is that God has given His Son. The Father has sent the Son to die on our behalf, to take our place as our substitute. To rise again from the grave, to give us the promise of the forgiveness of sins and the filling of His Spirit to all who believe. That if we will, in our desperation, cry out in faith, Lord Jesus, save me, I turn to you, that He has promised He will do that. He will save us in our place of desperation. He will hear our prayer and He will bring us into a day-to-day -day walk of dependence on Him. And that's the beauty of dependence. Walking with Jesus. Would you please stand with me? As we bring our service to a close, we've come to really what's the most important part. That time where we respond to God's Word. Not to respond to a preacher or even a church, but to respond to a living God who calls us to walk with Him. What's God doing in your heart this morning? Maybe there's some of you that realize you've been trusting in yourself to be right with God. That will never do. But if you turn from your way and you place your faith in Christ, God will accept you. He will make you his child. Maybe for some of you, that's where you need to begin is by saying, look, it's time for me to quit trusting in myself and to take the Savior God has provided. Or maybe for some of us, we realize we've just been living from desperation to desperation and it's time to get out of that and to come back to a moment-by-moment -moment dependence 
upon a good God who loves us, who is for us, who is not against us, and who will provide for our every need today. I'm going to pray. I'll be down front. One of my elders will be down front as well. As God leads, you respond. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for this moment to respond to your word. We thank you for your word that is settled in heaven. And we thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you will not fail us. You are faithful and you will always be faithful. God, this moment, draw us to yourself in a new way. Stir in our hearts afresh and anew that it's really a joyful thing to walk day by day, moment by moment, independent, moment by moment, independence upon you. That's a good thing. That's how we were made to live. Bless this time of response, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.